Well, good morning, VRBC. So glad to have so many of you joining us online. So great to see you in the room as well. And this week we are uh, finishing our four-week series on the book of Jonah. And I don't know about you, but I have really enjoyed this four-week walk through Jonah. If you are uh, just joining us today, one of the, the truths that we've seen each week is that our God is a missionary. Our God has a heart for people. And Jonah, who works for God, is a missionary, sorta. But his heart is just so far from God. And yet, as we've seen, God is patient with Jonah and God is patient with us. And so today, as we close out this series, uh, we'll look one last time at the tremendous compassion that God has for Jonah and for lost people and for us. And so I want to read uh, Jonah chapter 4 to you. Um, before I do, I just want to acknowledge that several times in this chapter, Jonah mentions that he is so angry he wants to die. And I think one of the things that I've been learning in recent years is how important it is to take uh, this seriously, how important it is to be aware of, uh, attuned to the challenges of, of mental illness. And I'm, I'm not in a position to diagnose Jonah here, but I just want you to know that we take this really seriously. If you are struggling with uh, suicidal ideation, we would love to talk with you or love for you to reach out and talk with someone. Jonah chapter 4, uh, I will begin reading in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to foresaw by fleeing to Tarshish when Jonah tried to go to Spain. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamities. So now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. Then he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade over his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, that you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? May God bless the reading of his word. So a few weeks ago, I went in for my annual physical. And you want to know my favorite part of the experience? When it was over. That was my favorite part. And well, it wasn't bad at all. Uh, my primary care doc, Dr. Swaldi, is fantastic. But, but one, of the, one of the most challenging things about a physical is that it is hard to hide the bad news. I mean, uh, first thing they do is they take your weight, uh, your, your temperature, you know, a little oxygen thing, your blood pressure. They listen to your lungs. There are a number of 
samples that are collected, so to speak, and, and what is healthy and unhealthy in your body. It, it, it is examined, and then you get a kind of report card on your health. Mine was, uh, was passing, uh, for which I was, uh, I was very grateful to God. But, but one of the things that impresses me about Jonah 4 is that, that God gives Jonah not so much a physical examination, but a spiritual examination. It is, I think, gentle and yet thorough. And in the process, God helps Jonah get in touch with things that are dangerously wrong with his soul. So I want to ask you, when's the last time you had not a physical exam, but a, but a spiritual exam? You see, medical science, uh, even with its rigor, can sometimes miss things that are wrong in our bodies, but God sees everything. God sees everything in our bodies and our souls. And so today, I'm going to invite you to kind of jump up on that, uh, hosp- that uh, doctor's office uh, bed, if you will, and to kind of sit down beside Jonah. And as God administers uh, a spiritual exam to Jonah, I want you to think about your own mind and heart and life. Uh, as God exposes symptoms in Jonah's soul, I want you to think about your own soul. So I invite you to get a a spiritual examination with Jonah. And to understand the the specifics of it, just want to briefly set the stage for what's been going on as Jonah chapter 4 opens. If you were with us last week, if you've read the book of Jonah chapter 3, you know that Jonah preached an eight-word sermon, or perhaps it was a sermon summary, which basically says 40 more days in Nineveh, this large city uh, in Assyria, will be overturned. Now, Jonah was clearly hoping for the overturned part. He he was rooting for destruction. He was rooting for God's wrath to fall on the evil city of Nineveh. And likely around day 41, day 42, uh, Jonah is waiting for that fire and brimstone to come down, and, uh, and he starts to realize it's not coming. And so how does Jonah feel about God's decision not to punish Nineveh? Well, look at verse 1. I keep looking here, but I'm going to start looking here. It says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Uh, the, the word there for anger suggests a burning anger. It suggests kind of a blind rage. After all, Nineveh was Israel's mortal enemy. And maybe Jonah had still been hopeful that God would, would change his mind and destroy Nineveh. And maybe that's why he made this little makeshift shelter just east of the city uh, on this kind of arid, rocky plain where he could have a good view of Nineveh. Uh, The scripture says he made a a shelter. The the Hebrew word is the same one for the word for tabernacle or booth. And maybe you're familiar with one of the three major annual pilgrimages uh, in uh, Jewish life, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, where the people would commemorate God sustaining them as they camped out in little tents uh, in the wilderness. And they would kind of have their own camp out once a year, and they would celebrate God's faithfulness. In fact, the, the, the prophet Zechariah looked forward to a day when Jews and Gentiles would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles together. But in Jonah's little tent, there's only room for one. Nobody else is invited. He's in a little tent, and he's intent on seeing God's judgment. And when God doesn't judge Nineveh because Nineveh uh, repented before God, Jonah's heart is so angry. 
And I think that leads us to this first diagnostic question for our spiritual examination today. And that is, how's your heart? What's the current condition of your heart? Jonah's heart was like this Mount Vesuvius, uh, this volcano of rage against God and against Nineveh. In fact, uh, in verse two, it's almost as if Jonah resents God for his compassion. (laughs) I mean, in verse two, Jonah is literally mad at God for being God. (laughs) He's mad at God for having God's character. Look at verse two. It says, he, Jonah, prayed to the Lord. Now look at this prayer. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home before God called him to go to Nineveh? This is what I tried to forestall, he says, by fleeing to Tarshish, by getting on a boat and trying to go to Spain. He says, I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Most of the time when we read these words in Scripture, and we read them often in the Old Testament, they're, they're expressed as words of praise. You're gracious, you're compassionate, you're slow to anger. Here, Jonah is frustrated. <laughs> you hear what he's saying? It's kind of like, I knew it. <clears throat> I knew you were going to forgive Nineveh. Right? That, that, that's why I, I ran away. I knew you'd be gracious. I knew you'd be compassionate and forgiving. I called it perfectly, unfortunately, Jonah says. And now, God, I'd rather die than see my enemy prosper. Now, what Jonah says, ironically, about God is absolutely true. God is gracious and compassionate. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. That Hebrew phrase, slow to anger, literally means long of nose. You know how uh, sometimes when you get angry, your nostrils flare out? But somebody who is long of nose is, is somebody who's patient. Somebody who controls their anger. You are slow to anger. In other words, God's heart is filled with patience as he puts up with the sins of Nineveh and also by the way of Jonah and also by the way of us. Yes, God eventually punishes us when we refuse to acknowledge and repent. But before judgment comes, there's a grace period. And for most of us, it's usually a lot longer than 40 days. God loves to show mercy to those who repent. But Jonah's heart is not in a mood for God to show mercy to his enemies. Can I ask you, have you ever felt like that? Do you feel like that right now? You feel like somebody's getting away with something (laughs) and it's not right? And you want God to do something and God isn't? And so you're thinking about making a citizen's arrest on your own? That's how Jonah felt. But here's the funny thing. When Jonah was in the belly of the whale, chapter two, he was so, so, so grateful that God was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But when it comes to somebody else, Jonah's filled with anger. Now I should say, uh, not all anger is sinful. There's a form of righteous anger, but that righteous anger is aimed toward evil. It's aimed toward injustice. The the poet Maya Angelou has said that, that righteous anger can be like a fire that burns off the dross and leaves beauty, leaves purity. But she said, but I, I believe in righteous anger, she said, but I don't believe in bitterness. Bitterness is not the same thing as righteous anger. So, honest question. If we just did a spiritual scan of your heart right now, would we find any traces of bitterness? Would we find self-righteousness? Is there any way in your life that you've, in a sense, built your own little booth 
to look down in condescension on others. I mean, are there people that you actually enjoy sitting in judgment on? And when it comes to these folks, you are all wrath and no mercy. A group of influential early church Christians, they've come to be known as the desert fathers and mothers. They lived austere monastic lives in the wilderness and they uh, wrote a lot of theology and uh, they used to warn more frequently about anger than they did sexual sins, which is kind of different from a typical church attitude, right? Most churches rightly recognize that sexual sin's a big deal. That's why the Bible tells us to flee from it. But too often, I think, we pretend as if bitterness is a safe sin. Uh, It's a victimless crime. But what if we're wrong? What if bitterness actually poisons the soul? What if Mark Twain is right when he says that anger is an acid that destroys its container? And I think this is medically proven true. A friend shared an article with me about the ways that unchecked anger literally harms your health. Everything from increased heart attacks and stroke risk to links to anxiety and depression. That unchecked bitterness is literally harming our bodies and our souls. Can I ask you, how's your heart today? Where's anger, rage bubbling up? Where do you sit in God-like judgment? There's a second part of the spiritual exam that God gives to Jonah, but I think God gives it to us as well, and that is how's your endurance? How's your endurance? Sometimes a a medical clinic will have you do a a stress test, a a treadmill test. They want to see how your heart and lungs do when they're forced to walk or run quickly, perhaps, uh, on an incline. They want to see how you respond to stress. They want to see how your body responds to discomfort. Well, what becomes clear to me in Jonah 4 is that God wanted to test the quality of Jonah's uh, endurance as well. You see, the same God who appointed, or in the NIV, provided a big fish to help in Jonah's spiritual transformation is not done making these faculty appointments. God has a lot of experts that he appoints to help us grow. And uh, I want you to watch the progression of some of the the agents that God appoints. First, we're told in verse six that God appoints Dr. Leafy Plant. And so uh, verse, verse six says, then the Lord God provided a leafy or appointed a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. God causes this spreading vine to rise over Jonah, to provide him with shade, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah is ecstatic. The Ninevites are in mortal danger of destruction, but Jonah has the shady outdoor patio uh, maybe he's got the whole AV set up and, and the climate control is good and life is good. Hey, Jonah, how you doing? He says, I'm so happy. Look at my comfortable situation here. Look at my comfort. Of course, that's about to change because God still is making appointments. And so verse 7, enter Dr. Worm. But at, the, but at dawn the next day, God provided or appointed a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. Mm. shade is gone. It gets even worse because after Dr. Worm enters the picture and leaves the picture, God sends Dr. Scorching Wind 
and Dr. Blazing Sun. Verse eight says, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. How's Jonah doing now? (laughs) How's Jonah doing uh, when his comfort is removed? How does Jonah do with this stress test? Not well. Once again, so angry that he wants to die. I still remember one of my first global mission trips that I went on um, with this church. And if memory serves, I was actually in the middle of uh, a series on Jonah. And I'm, I'm not positive about this, but I think that I preached a sermon on Jonah chapter three and then got on a plane and then when I came back, I preached on Jonah four. And uh, it was one of those flights that leaves like Miami at nine or 10 p.m. and arrives in Lima around, I don't know, three or 4 a.m. And, uh, and you know, we stayed in nice accommodations and, uh, but it was just, it was very different from what I was used to. No central heat or air um, which meant that it was hard to sleep and there was a lot of street noise outside and we had to be very careful about the drinking water and we couldn't eat fresh vegetables because they were washed in the, in the, the regular water. We had to brush our teeth, you know, with bottled water. When you showered, you had to keep your mouth closed. Not big things, but to me they were. And bathrooms seemed to be scarce and I don't even know if I had a mobile phone then, but if I did, it didn't work. And uh, there was limited internet and uh, no radio or television or newspapers or Starbucks or Sports Center or Tex-Mex. And uh, it was, um, as I look back on it, it was a great week for sharing the gospel. But one of the things that I remember about that week was how preoccupied I was with my own loss of shade, with my own loss of comfort. And then when I got back home, it was time to preach on Jonah 4. <laughs> and I, I, I think it was probably one of the more meaningful sermons I've ever preached, not for anybody else, but for me, because I, I was preaching straight to myself. I was Jonah. I had lived it. I, I was fixated on my comfort. And I was starting to get in touch with how weak I was and how much endurance I needed. I, I was starting to get in touch with that um, truth that was in our growth guide this last week, that, that God uses suffering to, to prove the genuineness of our faith, to, to help us grow in endurance. That, that mission trip was like a stress test. And I realized that I was badly out of shape, spiritually speaking. I had a low tolerance for pain because my focus was on me and my comfort and not on God and not on others. I want to ask you, how's your endurance? <laughs> How much shade are you willing to sacrifice? Speaking of mission trips, uh, also many years ago, on a mission trip with students from VRBC, and we were serving at a Ronald McDonald house uh, associated with St. Jude's Hospital in Memphis. And I remember playing Uno with a six-year-old cancer patient named Jacob, and a delightful child, and later I got to meet Jacob's parents, and they said, you know, we're from uh, Detroit, but the mom had set up residence in Memphis, and the dad and brother were shuttling back and forth between, you know, Michigan and Memphis, and I remember saying to, to Jacob's mom, I can't imagine how stressful this is. I can't imagine how disruptive this is. And she looked at me and said very honestly, she said, it is terrible. It is awful. 
But then she said, but if Jacob is still with us five years from now, it will all be worth it. A mom was telling me that her love for her son meant that she would endure whatever she had to endure. Because endurance and love go together, don't they? If you love someone enough, you'll endure whatever you have to endure. You won't grow weary in well-doing, as the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 6, because you love. You love God and you love others and you seek a harvest. And so you'll keep working, you'll keep working, you'll keep enduring. I pray for you and me that God strengthens our heart. I pray that God strengthens our endurance. I pray that he takes our eyes off our shade and puts it on, on, a, on our love for people that God loves. People that God has created, which leads somewhat naturally to the third question, and that's how's your vision? How's your vision? God is the kind of God who uh, can be a cardiologist and an ophthalmologist all at the same time, and, and, uh, and God, I think, it gives Jonah an eye exam. You see, Jonah is evidently plagued with what you might call spiritual nearsightedness. All he could see was his shade. All he could see was that beautiful gazebo. All he could see was that shrub canopy. And when God sent a worm and a desert wind to destroy it, Jonah's discomfort made him want to give up on everything. Now, I want to be really clear here. God is not a sadist, right? God is not doing these things because he's mad at Jonah. No, as one commentator puts it, God uses these agents like the worm and the wind. God uses these agents to bring Jonah back to his calling. What's your calling? What's our calling? God checks in on this condition of Jonah's heart again in verse 9. He asks Jonah, are you right to be angry? Are you right to be discouraged over the plant? And Jonah doubles down. He says, yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I am right. And, 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 and listen to what God says in verse 10. He says, but the Lord says, you've been concerned about this plant. Now think about this. You didn't create it. You didn't tend it. You didn't give it miracle grow. It, it sprang up overnight. It died overnight. You didn't have anything to do with it, and yet you're fixated on it. The way I read verse 10 is, is that God is saying this. Let's think about this, Jonah. Let's, let's reason together. In your nearsightedness, you're, you're obsessed with the plants. All you can see, it's all you think about. You're obsessed with things, by the way, that are here today and gone tomorrow. That, that lack eternal value. You didn't create it, and yet you think you have a right to it. God says to Jonah. But Jonah could only see what was in front of him. He wasn't seeing the creator of his shade, and he wasn't seeing these creatures that God loves so much. And that leads us to the last verse in chapter 4, which I think in many ways is the most important verse in the whole book. God says, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, also many animals. God shows an unusual concern for plants and animals in this passage, doesn't he? You see that word concern? Uh, it could also be translated as pity. Um, it's sometimes captured by the idea of of looking at something with tears in your eyes. 
The best New Testament picture of this Old Testament verb concerned is Jesus looking out over Jerusalem and weeping over her spiritual state. These 120,000 people trigger God's compassion for for folks who, morally speaking, they don't know their right hand from their left. Morally and spiritually, they are badly in need of wisdom, badly in need of maturity. I think, friends, this is such a crucial point. When we climb up on our roofs, right, when we look out at our community, what do we see? Do we see people who make us angry? Do we see people we think don't deserve God's mercy as if we deserve God's mercy? Do we scorn them? Or do we see them as in need of just as much grace as we need? Or here's a harder question. Do we even go up on the roof at all? Do we even think about our community at all? How's your vision? How's your vision? Are we filled with self-righteousness, kind of like the the, the prayer of the Pharisee? I'm so glad I'm not like that person. (laughs) Look at me, I'm all mature. Look at them, they're immature. I love how the book of Jonah ends with a question mark. We don't know what happened next. But I think if Jonah is likely sharing this unflattering portrait of himself, could it be that it was that final question that finally got through? I have a friend who likes to speculate that, you know, if there was a Jonah 5, chapter 5, what it would say. And, and this is just speculation. But, but what if Jonah's anger turned to love? What if his comfort-driven weakness turned into a new strength and perseverance? What if his spiritual myopathy, his, his, his spiritual nearsightedness was cured? What if he really saw the hearts of those people that he wanted destroyed? As we wrap up this series on Jonah today, I, I want to return to that first question, and that is, how's your heart? How's your heart? I'm praying that our hearts are filled with compassion. I'm praying for tender hearts. You ever notice that some of the biggest villains in the Bible are described as being hard-hearted? Have you ever noticed that? It must be that the heart's pretty important. Maybe that's why Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Your heart is a wellspring. Guard your heart. I found myself this week praying for you and me that our hearts would be softened by grace, that our hearts would be guarded by the Holy Spirit, and that our hearts would be opened wide to see what God is up to. There's a, a theologian um, and leader that I, um, I've, I've learned so much from uh, his books. He's uh, a Sri Lankan Christian. His name is Ajith Fernando, and he once described this church he was familiar with in the southern United States. Uh, It was a a church in a university town, and it was during the 1960s and 70s, which if you didn't uh, live through that era uh, and don't have Wikipedia, uh, this was an era of uh, kind of the hippie movement. And uh, here's this church, and it's filled with a lot of traditional non-hippies, and it's in a college town, and 
Uh, many people in the church are praying about reaching students, and some are more frustrated with students. And he said that one Sunday morning, they're, they're having big church, and a university student actually came to church. Typical hippie, he said, no shoes, long hair. And during the middle of the sermon, he actually walks down the center aisle. And he comes and he comes up on the platform while the preacher is preaching, and he sits down, kind of crisscross applesauce style, and looks up at the preacher. And everybody's thinking, uh oh. <laughs> I mean, you don't do that in big church. I mean, you, you don't come barefoot, you don't, you know, and maybe in some of those churches you don't come with long hair and and uh, and you don't come without wearing a suit, and 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 and, and you certainly don't disrupt the sermon, and here this guy is, and he's sitting on the platform, what's everybody gonna do? And he says, all of a sudden, this old elder stands up and he begins to walk toward the platform. And everybody's thinking, oh, man, he's going to grab him by the ear. He's going to grab him by the collar, you know. And this old man walks up on the platform and sits down next to the hippie college student and listens to the remainder of the sermon. Now, I'm an old man. It's hard to sit down uh, on the floor, right? And, uh, And yet it seems like this elder was willing to sacrifice his comfort and his dignity so that this young student would feel welcome in church. Turns out he had a vision to look past the generational divide, to look past the long hair and bare feet, which Jesus had, right? (laughs) And to see the young man's heart. I would suggest to you the heart of that old man, that elder, is the heart of Jesus. It's a tender heart. It's an undivided heart. It's a heart that sees past the exteriors and sees to the central issues of life. It's a heart that's willing to sacrifice dignity, that's willing to risk embarrassment, that's willing to sacrifice comfort. It's a heart that is well guarded. It's a heart that is a wellspring of grace. Lord, renovate our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, the Apostle Paul prays that you would open the eyes of our heart And Lord, I want to pray the same thing, that the eyes of our hearts would be open this morning, that we would see with clarity our spiritual health. And Lord, in in ways that our uh, lives need to grow, that we would be open to spiritual surgery, that we would be open uh, to spiritual exercises and disciplines, that we would be open to the presence, the healing presence of the spirit of Jesus. Lord, I thank you um, for this church and in so many ways, Lord, in so many ways, I see a heart for schools. I see a heart for the aged. I see a heart for the unhoused. I see a heart for the lost. And yet, Lord, I know at the same time, so many of us, Lord, So many of us, if we're not careful, our bitterness 
gets the best of us. Our lack of endurance, Lord, makes us winded. So often, Lord, our comfort is what we look to first. Lord, do a work in us. Do a work of spiritual healing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.